Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Aaron Rodgers. Reason for that, the big news from Aaron Rodgers' Instagram post on Monday night was that there was no big news. He went on with Pat McAfee and said that he has not yet made a decision and that the post with all the photos really was nothing more than him sharing some, quote, hashtag Monday Night Gratitude. He made it very clear. There was nothing cryptic in that. There was nothing subliminal in that. The message really was the message, a message of gratitude. What Aaron said was he had been going through photos from the past year and, quote, had an intense amount of gratitude for the life that I have and the lessons I've learned, end of quote. So in other words, nothing to see here. That's all it is. Just gratitude. Just gratitude. To which I would say, What's wrong with that, you losers? And that's not just me having Aaron's back. I mean, I would say that about anybody and anything. What is wrong with somebody being grateful? What is wrong with somebody acknowledging that they're grateful? Since when is that a bad thing? In fact, I'm just going to put it out there. It says right here, if there were more gratitude or was more gratitude in this world, the world would be a hell of a lot better place. Uh, yeah, I said it. <laughs> gratitude is good. Gratitude is positive. And maybe this feeling of gratitude is coming from the fact that he had just finished off a 12-day Panchakarma. A 12-day Panchakarma. Aaron said, quote, it's a cleanse. It originated in India. It's been going on for thousands of years, and it's something I've done in the offseason. End of quote. All right, here is something that we are not going to do. I'm not going to turn this into a discussion or a debate about cleanses. I don't need Cleanse Nation coming up in here and telling me about how to get rid of all the toxins in my body. I already know I need to. I just don't need you to tell me how to. I don't need you hitting me up with recipes for lemon juice drinks that will get rid of all the processed flour that's coursing through my veins. Just like I don't need you on the other side, you anti-cleansers, to break my inbox with all your criticisms of cleanses. Listen, if this guy is looking to improve medically, mentally, spiritually, and in every way possible, and it works for him, great. I don't know. I haven't tried it, so I'm not going to knock it. And I'm not here for you to come in here and knock it either. Like, if you've got a really strong take on cleanses, either pro or con, do me a favor. Don't bring it to me. Take it to your local food co-op or musical festival or hacky sack competition. Just don't do it here. Anywhere but here. If you didn't get the chance to look up PK, as Rogers referred to it, I am here to help. According to the Sporting News... And the Sporting News is, in fact, my go-to source for all information on health and cleanses. Like, I love to go to a place where I can find out info on a 12-day cleanse and the box score of a Yankees-Rays game. That's what I love the Sporting News for. The Sporting News, though, apparently researched it. And according to TSN, the Sporting News, there are five aspects to this cleanse. Let me try to break this down. And again, I'm getting this. My source is the Sporting News. There is induced vomiting. That quote helps clear 
the upper gas row to the duodenum and part of the respiratory tract. I mean, never mind doing it. I don't even understand it, much less able to say it. But okay, cool. Whatever. That's step one. Again, I am just reporting. This is a non-judgment zone. A judgment-free zone. That's number one. Number two, quote, induced purgation clears the lower gastro from the duodenum till the exit. All right. That's number two. Here's number three, quote, oil enema helps lubricate the rectal area and take out all the (laughs) lipid soluble waste out through the anus. Mm. All right. Next, there is, quote, nasal installation of medicated substances Helps clear the respiratory tract and paranasal sinuses. Not one, not two, not three. That's four for him. And the fifth and final part is decoction enema cleanses the area from the transverse colon till the anus. And that's five. There you have it. That's what that cleanse is all about according to the Sporting News. As I've said before, the Sporting News is my number one resource when it comes to all health matters. But there's the chance that the place that named Kyle Singler as the 2010 College Athlete of the Year might not be the very best source of information on 12-day cleanses. I don't know enough to know. I'm not going to judge. I'm just saying that if I want to go to one place to get box scores and my info on cleanses, that's where I go. Now... If all of that is true, no wonder that dude was feeling a ton of gratitude when it was all over. I'd be grateful as hell when I finished nearly two weeks of all that. I'd be grateful as hell if I got through stage one, much less all five. Listen, I don't care what the hell you did over the past two weeks. I guarantee it was not nearly as tough as that. Now, I don't know for a fact that Aaron did this version of the 12-day cleanse. But knowing you all, you're going to be focused on the fact that he just spent the last 12 days, allegedly, puking, using enemas, and spraying a bunch of stuff up his nose. You're not going to spend any of the time breaking down what it might have done for him mentally, psychologically, and spiritually. No. You're going to be focused on the puking, the snorting, the defecating, the evacuating. You know, all your favorite stuff. And as always, I know exactly what you're going to do with it. You're going to get obsessed with the emotional Instagram post and the fact that he's been puking his guts out and enemying his guts out for nearly a half month. Not me. Not what I do. Not where I live. Not what I'm about. I'm not obsessed with that stuff. I don't give a damn about any of that stuff. But you do. Look, you you clones, the ones that, you, that are going to go so hard on this, and go in on this, you can't even detox from your phone for a half hour. You can't even detox from your horrible takes for five minutes. But you'll take a run at a guy for detoxing for nearly two weeks to try to do his best for himself, his life, his career, and everything else. Look, what I'm saying to you is this. Good for him. 
He's got a major life decision coming up. And as with everything else, if he's coming out of it feeling incredible amounts of gratitude, how is that a bad thing? Don't you want to be making a major life decision from a place of gratitude? Or would you losers rather he make it from a place of bitterness and anger? I know the answer to that. You'd rather he be full of toxins and in a really toxic place. But it's not a good take. It's not a good idea. It's not a good angle. If all of this puts this guy in a place where he's feeling healthier, more centered, more present, how is that a bad thing? Answer me that. Or let me help you. It's not. See, you can't answer that because you'll be way too focused on what's coming out his mouth and his nose and his ass. Let me help you with something. I can dumb this down even further so you can understand it. What Aaron did is like what I did yesterday for 2-22-22. Remember the Anything Goes segment? Instead of an oil enema, I used the phones to get rid of all your pent-up SJP horse waste and personal appearance toxins. You see, 2-22-22, 4-22 minutes, was a cleansing of the jungle colon. It was like a jungle colonoscopy. The only problem is, unlike Aaron, I don't feel gratitude. I'm not grateful. In fact, I feel even less healthy and more bitter. Yesterday was actually 22 minutes of me throwing up in my own mouth and then swallowing it. I'd give anything to feel as grateful and as cleansed and as good as Aaron probably does right about now. This podcast is brought to you by DirecTV Stream. Now, does this sound familiar to you? You've got one device that allows you to catch the game live, another that lets you stream your favorite shows, you're watching sports highlights on your phone, and you've got your neighbor's best friends log in for all the good stuff. Does that sound familiar? If so, let me tell you about a very simple way to get all the entertainment that you love, but without all that hassle. It's called Direct TV Stream. It brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before, so you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. It also means no juggling remotes, no need to buy another device ever again, and the very best part, there is no annual contract. So get rid of all the clutter and all the confusion and get your TV together with DirecTV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. Compatible devices required. Content varies by package. It is Ian O'Connor. Ian, it is so good to have you back. Ian, how are you? Hey, Jim. How are you? I am awesome. It's great to speak with you. So, Ian, you have written biographies on Derek Jeter, Bill Belichick. So I'm curious, we start right here. What was it about Coach K that intrigued you so much and made you want to interview more than 250 people, Ian, for this book? Jim, I was always fascinated by, by him, by his program. I was there for the transition of Duke. People forget Duke was the Buffalo Bills before the Buffalo Bills. They could not win the big one and covered some of those Bobby Hurley, Christian Leitner, Grant Hill teams that finally broke through and won it and was there, of course, for the, the greatest moment probably in the history of the sport when Christian Leitner made that shot against Kentucky in the Philly Spectrum. I was courtside, and I'll never forget looking across the floor, and after Leitner made that shot, Mike Krzyzewski had a, had a towel in his hand, and he spiked it 
like a football in the end zone. And I was always curious why he did that. And, and I think it was because he thought that the previous shot made by Kentucky wasn't a worthy way of ending a classic game. And of course the Leitner shot was. So I just think over the years of observing that program, sometimes up close, but mostly from afar, there was a certain fascination about Krzyzewski who, who is maybe not as mysterious as Belichick, my previous subject, but a fairly mysterious and distant figure that I wanted to get to know better and explore, and that's what I did. Ian O'Connor is joining us. The book is called Coach K, The Rise and Reign of Mike Krzyzewski, and it is out right now. So, Ian, you talk about how his communication skills are one of the things that set him apart. I mean, how good are they, and then how do you explain his ability to connect and communicate with pretty much anybody? Well, part of it, Jim, is obviously he's always talked about West Point as being the ultimate leadership academy and place in the world really. And so I think his skills are honed there as a leader, as a communicator, but a lot of that, I think you're just born with. And so his ability, I was told by so many people to communicate one-on-one, if you're in a room with him and no matter what your background is, how old you are, race, gender, uh, financial background, whatever it may be that he could, when communicating with you one-on-one, make you feel like you're the only other person in the world at that moment. And that's a rare gift and ability, and I think is a big part of why, ultimately, he built this dynasty and won nearly 1,200 games. All right, so Ian, there's so many really interesting anecdotes and stories in the book that I want to get to, but i got to pick my spots. In terms of Bobby Knight, the relationship between the two of them is fascinating, of course, and I want to get into how that fell apart in a moment. But overall, Ian, how much Bobby Knight is there in Coach K? Oh, I think, I think there's a lot of Bobby Knight and Coach K to this day, frankly. I mean, he raised them in the business. He coached them at Army. He hired them at Indiana in the mid-1970s as a grad assistant. He helped them get the Army job. He helped them get the Duke job. He put them on the Pan Am game staff in 79. So he, he really – so obviously Mike and the way he coached is going to reflect that. And I think the difference is that Bob Knight would cross – the line of unacceptable behavior and conduct coach to player. And we, we've seen that visibly on, on one particular uh, audio tape and videotape. And, and, and then Mike Krzyzewski would never cross that line. He'd go up to it. And certainly he used uh, extreme profanity and sometimes degrading language in practices to try to motivate his, his players and get the best out of them. But he would go right up to that Bob Knight line and just never cross it. And I think that's the difference in the two approaches. You know, Connor is my guest. Ian, to that point, did Coach K actually challenge a player to a fight? Elton Brand told me that story. And, and yeah, he did. And Elton Brand said, by the way, I think Coach K would have won that fight. And so, yeah, I, I think he really uh, – a lot of people would be surprised if they attended his practices and watched how he motivated – I think, and another thing that's surprising is just how profane he is. I sat behind his bench for the first time in 1999 in the NCAA tournament. He was facing Steve Alford and Southwest Missouri State in New Jersey in the Sweet 16. And I just couldn't believe the level of profanity. It was relentless. Two hours plus of just screaming profanities at everybody. And and I remember saying to myself, there are a lot of grandmothers in America who love this guy. If they ever sat near that bench, they might have a slightly different viewpoint. But... He is uh, an intense guy. There is Bobby Knight rage in there. And, and some of it really may be shaped by the fact that he's a street kid from Chicago at his core. He is a blue-collar kid 
raised by blue-collar parents who spent their lives really laboring for wealthy people. And so that Street Fighter does come out in his motivational approach, and, and I think you've seen that in that Duke program. Well, I agree. I, in fact, I've talked to him about that. I think that there is a big part of him that is still that person. Ian O'Connor joins us. The book is called Coach K, The Rise and Reign of Mike Krzyzewski. That book's out right now. So, Ian, in 92, Indiana and Duke meet in the Final Four. Before that game, Knight put a note in an envelope, and he gave it to somebody to give to Coach K. What was in the envelope, and then how did K react to it when he finally did read it? Right, Knight gave that envelope to Colonel Tom Rogers, a Duke assistant who had been with Knight at West Point. And basically, there had been some quotes over time from Krzyzewski clearly trying to distance himself a little bit from Knight and acknowledging Knight's influence on him being profound, but also saying, hey, other people influence me as well. So Knight read those things, and then finally there was a, an article in Sports Illustrated quoting an anonymous Krzyzewski friend, effectively saying that the relationship was pretty much over and, and I think that sent Knight over the edge. So he clips that out. He circles the quote. He puts a note in there that basically said, remember, remember how I helped you. Just remember who helped you get these jobs in the past, which he did. And thankfully, Colonel Tom Rogers did not give that note to Mike until after the game. So Duke beats Indiana at that Final Four. Uh, Knight gives a Belichickian drive-by handshake. And then Coach K later gets ignored by Knight in the hallway as they pass each other going to and from press conferences. And when he finally looks at the note, he was, he was blown away by it. And really, uh, in his hotel room later, was, was in tears. Mike Bray, then now the head coach at Notre Dame, of course, but then the Duke assistant, he's the one who snapped K out of it. He told him, bleep Knight, he wants you to feel this way, so you'll lose Monday night to Michigan in the national championship game. So that got... Coach K out of that funk and got him focused on the Fab Five. And, of course, two nights later, they won that game for their second straight national title. Incredible. Ian O'Connor joining me for another few moments. Ian, how would you describe K's relationship with Kobe Bryant? Oh, he had a good relationship with Kobe Bryant. And Kobe recruited him for the Lakers in, what, 2004. If Kobe played college basketball, it was going to be for Coach K at Duke. They had a moment in the Olympics where Kobe started taking, this is in the prelim game against Australia, right before they left for Beijing from Shanghai. And, yeah, Kobe had started taking some shots that were Lakers shots, BS shots, as some referred to them, on Team USA. And LeBron said to him in the middle of that Australia game, yo, coach, you better fix that mother bleep. So now Krzyzewski was apprehensive about approaching Kobe Bryant to tell him that. But the next day he did. He pulled him aside in a side room opened up his laptop, and he showed him some shots that he took, and he just said, we can't have this. This isn't the Lakers. You're playing with the best players in the world. You have LeBron and Jason Kidd and others as your teammates. You, you can't be taking these kind of shots. Kobe looked at him and effectively said, okay, coach, I got it. Don't worry about it, and moved on. And so Coach K then let LeBron James know, hey, I took care of it. So it was a case of LeBron holding Coach K accountable, Coach K holding Kobe accountable, and then the funny thing is, Kobe took some pretty acrobatic shots at the end of that gold medal game to save them against Spain. So uh, I think it worked out in a positive way for all concerned. Ian O'Connor joining us. Ian, really quickly, why was it so important to Coach K that John Shire and not Tommy Amaker would be the one to take over that program? Right. Amaker being in his mid-50s, a Division I head coach at three different schools, he comes back after 24 years away uh, from Duke and I think he has his own ideas on how to run a program. John Shire, 33, 34 years old, 
never coached anywhere else. He's a protege who's there. So I think it allows Shire allows Coach K next year and maybe beyond to have a fair amount of influence on that program. And I think that was very important to Coach K. So, Ian, finally, what do you think his life is going to be like in retirement? He doesn't have many hobbies, Jim. He doesn't play golf like Roy Williams does. He doesn't read much. He, he likes to do a little gardening. And so I think he's going to be pretty involved in that basketball program. He's keeping his office on the sixth floor, overlooking Krzyzewskiville there. So I think he's going to be present. He might pop into some practices when they bring recruits on the campus. I'm pretty sure they will meet Coach K. So I see him staying involved in that program. Hey, he built it over 42 years. He's probably earned the right to do that. It'd be interesting to see the relationship with Shire and how that plays out over the next few years. He is a New York Post sports columnist. He is a New York Times bestselling author, and he is the author of the latest book, Coach K, The Rise and Reign of Mike Krzyzewski. That book is an excellent read. It's out right now. He is Ian O'Connor. Ian, so good to have you on the show. Thanks so much, and congrats on the book. Hey, thank you, Jim. Much appreciated. Much appreciated. Clones, what do you want when you're craving protein or you need more energy? Not bars, not sugary snacks, not energy drinks. You want beef, pure and simple. Where's the beef? It's in a package of Old Trapper Beef Jerky. Old Trapper is not your old man's jerky. Shriveled, dry, tasteless. Old Trapper Beef Jerky is made from lean strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a real wood fire. It's tender, it's tasty, it's not tough. And why is it so good? Because Old Trapper is a 50-year-old family business known for its relentless commitment to quality. They take smoked beef extremely seriously, and you can taste it in every single bite. Old Trapper is packed with protein. It comes in four amazing flavors to satisfy all your cravings. Quality smoked meat at its finest. It goes with you wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach. So look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. Clones, if you do not see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? So remember last week when, now I at least want to start this thought and this take, but I'm not going to cut into your time. But remember last week when Phil Mickelson got to bumping his gums? You know the comments that I'm referring to, the ones where he referred to the people behind the, behind the Saudi Golf League as, quote, scary mother bleepers to get involved with, end of quote. He then went on to say that, quote, we know they killed Washington Post reporter Jamal Khashoggi and have a horrible record on human rights. They execute people over there for being gay. End of quote. He said that. He then went on to say that, quote, knowing all of this, why would I even consider it? Because this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to reshape how the PGA Tour operates. End of quote. So now the entire thing is blown up in this guy's face in the worst way possible. And he is losing multiple sponsors. Of course. Hefty, being hefty, wants a mulligan. You know, sort of. Hefty went with a full-blown Twitter statement. Quote, listen to Hefty now. It's like the most hefty thing ever. Quote, although it doesn't look this way now, given my recent comments, my actions throughout this process have always been with the best interests of golf, my peers, sponsors, and fans. There is the problem of off-the-record comments being shared out of context and without my consent. 
But the bigger issue is that I used words that do not reflect my true feelings or intentions. End of quote. So let me jump in there right now and say, if you're looking to apologize for your utterly moronic statements, that ain't it, Haas. You don't start an apology by making yourself out to be the victim. If you're apologizing, then start with an actual apology, not an explanation for why you were actually right to do what you did. And then take a run at the journalist who published the comments. And as for that idiotic claim that they were off-the-record comments, as if that would somehow make the comments better or smarter. Get that bullcrap out of here. I'm not having it. And more importantly, the journo that you tried to drag, Alan Shipnook, is not having it. He wrecked Hefty in response. Quote, this is Shipnook. Just as in the statement he released on Tuesday afternoon, Mickelson made a half-hearted attempt at revisionist history, trying to say our talk had been a private conversation, but I shut that down real quick. Shut it down. Let's go home. He added, quote, if the subject of a biography phones the author, the content of that conversation is always going to inform the book unless it is expressly agreed otherwise. Not once in our texts or when we got on the phone did Mickelson request to go off the record, and I never consented to it, end quote. And then to really hammer it home, he says, quote, Mickelson simply called me up and opened a vein. To claim now that the comments were off the record is false and duplicitous. End quote. In other words, hey, dumbass, if you're calling a guy who's writing a biography of you because you want to talk to him to clear some things up, you're going to be on the record, moron. Dumbass. Unless you specifically say otherwise and both parties agree to it. And according to Shipnook, that never happened. And whose word are you going to take in this case? The word of one of the most disingenuous dudes ever or a longtime reputable journo? Personally, I believe the journo because if Hefty's gums get to bumping, there's probably a lie or lies about to start flying right out his pie hole. You know, toughen up. Of course he called him up and opened a vein because he was convinced he was right. He's always convinced that he is right. This guy thinks he's Albert Einstein. He thinks he's the greatest chess player in the history of the world. He still thinks he's right. He just doesn't understand why the rest of us, including his peers, are all so wrong and why they're all piling on him now. He knows he did the right thing, and he can't understand why the rest of us aren't thanking him for working with those, quote, scary mother bleepers. You see, in Hefty's world, he's not a villain. He's a hero. Don't believe me? Check out the second paragraph of his alleged apology. Quote, Golf desperately needs change, and real change is always preceded by disruption. I have always known that criticism would come with exploring anything new. I still chose to put myself at the forefront of this to inspire change, taking the hits publicly to do the work behind the scenes. End of quote. 
But you get a load of this a-hole. Five sentences into an alleged apology, and he's turned himself into a martyr. Like, yo, I am a disruptor. I am the guy who chose to put himself at the forefront to inspire change and take the hits publicly. I mean, damn. I had no idea that Mother Teresa had come back and was playing on the PGA Tour and had the Pope on her bag. Inspire change? Man, slow your roll, dude. You're an overweight millionaire looking to make a couple of extra million, not some civil rights campaigner in the 60s. And that's exactly why I'm not going to buy this apology at all, because he would do the same thing all over again. He's not sorry for what he said. He's sorry that it's costing him sponsors and his peers are cracking back on him and his naive minions are finally figuring out who this guy really is and what he's really all about. And one more thing before I go to break. It's hilarious to me that the guy who was so desperate for more money that he would work with, quote, scary mother bleepers, is now losing money because he couldn't wait to talk about wanting to work with scary mother bleepers. Nice try. And now he's talking about, you know, there's more. He literally tried to also spin this into, hey, you know, I've been under incredible duress for the past decade, so I have not been myself. Oh, oh, so that's why you said what you said to a reporter who you said took it out of context. I mean, even for this dude, are you kidding me about this? Hey, chess grandmaster, you're playing checkers and really poorly. Dude, you should do this. Go away. I know you said it's time for you to take a break. Do that. Take a break. Take a really long break. We won't even know you're gone. It'll be better for you. It'll be better for the sport. It'll be better for the world. Stop coming up in here and running that bull crap around here. Even, even your most naive minions are starting to see who you are and what you're about. So do that. Take a break. Take a long break. And now I'm pissed. This is cutting into my best segment of the week. This podcast is brought to you by DirecTV Stream. Now, does this sound familiar to you? You've got one device that allows you to catch the game live, another that lets you stream your favorite shows, you're watching sports highlights on your phone, and you've got your neighbor's best friends log in for all the good stuff. Does that sound familiar? If so, let me tell you about a very simple way to get all the entertainment that you love, but without all that hassle. It's called DirecTV Stream. It brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before, so you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. It also means no juggling remotes, no need to buy another device ever again, and the very best part, there is no annual contract. So get rid of all the clutter and all the confusion and get your TV together with DirecTV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. Compatible devices required. Content varies by package. Varone McKinley the third. Varone, great to have you on. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good, good. Yeah, I'm always curious. So you're working right now at Exos as part of your pre-draft prep. Now that you're out and this is a full-time gig, what's a normal day like for you? And are you enjoying the prep and the process? Um, a normal day, it, it, it consists of, of PT and speed work. So We'll start up in the morning. I'll come in early, get some stretching, some, some PT stuff, just to make sure I'm mobile and stretched and ready to go for the speed workout. Then we'll do some speed stuff. After that, I'll 
go into position work, and then after position work, I'll eat, go back to do some more PT and things like that, and then we'll do a lift. So what we're talking about right now, it's a job. Now it is officially a job because you're getting ready for a really big job interview. Now you decide to enter the draft early. I know that's not a decision that you were going to take lightly. So what was that process like, and how did you know ultimately that you were ready to come out now? Um, the process, because talking to my parents and, and my coaches and just getting information and feedback from different people. And when I sat down and talked to my family and just after the year I had and, and the steps I've taken throughout college, we felt like it was time for me to take that next step. I was ready and mature and ready to go. I mean, to that point, right, you're coming off a season where you led FBS in interceptions. You were an All-American. You were a Jim Thorpe Award finalist. So what do those titles and honors mean to you? For instance, is there a feeling that you have arrived, you have proven yourself, and you've earned that respect, and you're ready? I would say that it, it, it was big because I went into this year not, not worried about getting awards. It was about winning as a team and, and gaining respect as a team and as an individual and just as a playmaker and as a, one of the best defensive players in the country. And so – Every week and every practice was about coming in and, and trying to prove that. And so that that's why it was super big, in my opinion. I like that mentality. I like that mindset. So are there days like like anybody else, you roll out and you're like, man, you know what? I'm not feeling it today, but you got a mindset or you have a standard or you have a switch. What do you do on those days where you don't feel like I need to prove that I'm one of the best in the game? How do you approach those days? Um, I would approach those days just, understanding what the end goal is and not every day is going to feel like you want to get up you want to go and and give your best effort but understanding that it's a process and that every single day matters and so for me getting up I realized especially going into probably these past few seasons I knew I was a leader I was somebody who had to step up and I need to be somebody that could be an example for anyone who wanted to look at me whether that was younger older knowing that I'm going to do everything right I'm going to get to the facility early, I'm going to put in the time and effort and take care of my body to make sure that I'm at peak performance whenever we get to game day. And that just applies in the meeting room, that applies in practice, that applies in what I eat and how I go about my day. So that's kind of how I attack it. Varone McKinley third is my guest. My man, you were a pro before you became a pro. Like, I love that approach. I love that mindset. What I'm curious about is where did that come from? When did you start getting that hammered into you, and who was the one who did it? Like, I'm really curious how you got to that point at such a young age. Um, I would say it's a couple of people. Um, just through my development, I started off playing quarterback when I was seven years old. So wanting to be a leader and be somebody that people look at and want to follow started early. But I would say my parents just understanding – type of world we live in and how you got to go out and earn everything you get it's not just going to be handed to you and then just some of the people that have mentored or coached me along the way I've had a lot of guys that are in the NFL now from Jamal Adams Hugo Amadi um, who else is there my own father who played in the NFL just different people who I've always learned game from and learned to how to approach different situations and so as well as my coaches and just everybody around me has always kind of helped me continue to grow and become better and so just making sure I listen and take those tools and apply them so I can get to my goal at the end of the day. All right, so you've been around a lot of really quality people, guys who have played the game at a high level, so you've obviously absorbed a lot and learned a lot of lessons. What about your dad? Your dad, as you just mentioned, played professionally. He also played at Texas Tech. He coached you in high school. Like, what are the most important things you learned from him growing up on and off the field? I would say some of the most important things were just understanding that you have to do things that you don't want to do all the time, and you have to do them when 
not everybody's watching. You got to do what's unexpected of you. And I kind of feel like that's allowed me to have that chip on my shoulder, understanding that it's a doggy dog world and not everybody's out for you. Not everybody's on your team. Not everybody wants to see you succeed, but it's about grinding and getting better and, and doing the little things right because those little things always add up to big things later on. And so when you do all of that, good things happen. And so that's why I find my dad's instilled in me so much and just not just working hard, but fine tuning the little details. It's like when somebody's talking about my game and what I can work on, I don't just say one specific thing because it's everything. I want to be a complete player. I want to be able to know what everybody is doing on our defense, why they're doing it, how they're doing it, and what's the point in them doing it. And all of that just applies to everything in life. All right, so we're talking to Verone McKinley the third. He is an NFL draft prospect. So the way you laid that out, I was going to get to this because your teammates make the point that you know the game is not just played physically, that the game is also played above the shoulders, the game is played between your ears, whatever cliche you want to use. So you put the time in. You put the time in in the film room, and as you just pointed out, you want to know not only what your job is, but what everybody else's job is. I bring this up because this knowledge also kind of plays out on Twitter during NFL games. You tweet a lot during games, and they're really informative tweets. Like, you're not looking to get clicks or go viral or get off hot takes. You're pointing out where guys do something really well and maybe not so well. What is your approach when it comes to live tweeting in games? My approach is seeing it, seeing it like a, a coach on the field or if I was in that position and just trying to – I like when they show – oh, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay, I like when they they show the big angle because I feel like the TV copies doesn't just show it doesn't show the whole play and so whenever whenever I'm I'm tweeting I just I like to break it down and just go from the front end to the back end of it because it allows for me to play better and it allows for me to take some of those things and imply them into my game so whenever I'm playing on that Saturday boom I can go and implement it like oh I saw this in the NFL or I saw this before and so it just allows for me to keep stimulating my mind and keep showing that that football IQ to get stronger and mentally stronger. All right, so clearly you have studied a lot of tape and a lot of film and did so, especially during the pandemic when you had that time. I'm curious, who are some of your favorite DBs to watch and learn from? Oh, there's so many. It's 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 hard because I watch so much football. But um, I like Minka Fitzpatrick. I like Jamal Adams, Tyron Matthew, Buda Baker, Justin Simmons. I feel like everybody, Micah Hyde, there's so many different types of safeties in the NFL who do a lot of different things, and I like to watch so many because they do do different things. And being able to play in a versatile defense where your safeties do a lot, they got to be in the box. they got to be playing single high, two half. They have to be playing man-to-man on, on receivers. So seeing all of that allows for me to imply it into my game. I like that. We are talking to Verone McKinley the third. He's getting ready for the NFL draft. He is a prospect, of course. So what do you want teams to know about you as a player and a person? In other words, what are they going to get if they draft you and bring you in? What they're getting is is a disciplined, self-driven, self-motivated team leader. Um, I have the nickname the general because I, I apply that on and off the field. It's not just about taking care of myself, but taking care of the guys around me because it's a puzzle. The whole entire team, the defense is the and whenever you have somebody that does things right on and off the field, who's going to make sure off the field they're taking care of their body, staying out of trouble, making sure they're doing extra work because this is like a job, but it's not. I don't see it as just a job because it's something I love to do. But also just somebody who stays out of trouble who you can look at and say he's doing everything right, I want to be like him, whether that's a younger person or older person. Then on the field, you get a versatile defensive back. I don't just consider myself, of course, a safety because it's defensive back. I can play in the slot. I've played corner. I've played safety. I can play high. I can do everything, and whatever defense I need to adjust to, it's easy for me because I've had 
three defensive coordinators, three position coaches. So always learning and adapting and adjusting off the field, in game, during the game, during a play, it, it, it's what you get out of me. All right, so you beat me to that. I was going to say the nickname, the general, great, great nickname. Where did that come from? How do you like that nickname? I love that nickname. Um, it started kind of around 2020, just when, you know, all the opt-outs and everything, and I stepped up and just – I was controlling everything back there. It was my second second year under my belt really getting to play, and I kind of took over. And guys were like, okay, it's kind of like you're commanding everything back there. I was like, I like the general, and it, it just started to play on. And the best became popular. And it just it, – it, you can see it in my game. You turn the film on, you can see me telling guys where to go, calling things out, pointing, and just, just leading. I wanted to be – the general, I wanted to, to dominate. The first year, it was like learning. I'm understanding the game, getting my, my feet wet. Year two, I wanted to establish myself. And then year three was about dominating and being the best. And so that's kind of how that, all, how that all happened. I love that. I got one final thought for you. You're obviously not the only Oregon Duck in the draft. Your teammate, Kayvon Thibodeau, is among the candidates to be the first player off the board. Todd McShay said he's heard, quote, concerns that he just doesn't play with the same fire as some other top prospects. And to quote, I mean, you live with this guy, you play with this guy, you've gone to battle with this guy. What is your reaction when you hear that? Does that sound accurate to you? Um, I wouldn't say that. I would say that he's somebody that comes in every single day ready to work, and he was never satisfied with the top prospects, but he was never satisfied with that. I mean, the guy sprained his ankle earlier in the year and still came back and still was making plays and, and being the, the KT that I know. And so I think he's arguably the best player in this draft, one of them, and, and I think he's going to have a great a great career and that's somebody that's, that's going to do whatever it takes. Truly. The draft is coming up on April 28th. It begins on, the, on that day. He's a former Oregon DB, a consensus consensus first-team All-American, a first-team All-Pac-12 player, and as I mentioned, he led FBS with six INTs, had a great, great year. Barone McKinley the third, my guest. My man, great to have you on the show. That's a great, great interview. I'm really impressed. Good luck with everything, and I'll look forward to seeing where you end up working and living, and I'm going to look for you again after that. Yes, sir. Thank you. I appreciate it. And now a message from Discover about customer service and common sense. When you have credit card questions, it is nice to have them answered by a real person. You know, somebody who can actually understand your issues and then work to resolve them. In other words, what you do not need is a robot. And that's why Discover offers helpful U.S.-based representatives that are available 24 and 7. No wonder we call it live customer service. Discover. Exceptionally common sense. Let's get to it. You know how it works. Rome. My beef is with the mom in Mrs. Doubtfire. First, she leaves her husband and rips him from his children, only for her to complain the entire movie about how hard it is to raise three kids alone and how hard it is to have to come home and clean the house. Maybe if you didn't leave the dude who loved you and your children so you could chase around 007 in a Speedo, you wouldn't be in this problem. Adam in South Jersey. Already the leader in the clubhouse because it's original. Jimmo's, my beef is with people who leave their high beams on as I drive by them. For once, I would like to be able to drive without feeling like I'm going to spin off of a cliff after 6 p.m. Unworn losers with trucks that cannot fit into regular parking spots. Stan in Springfield, agree and agree. Rome. 
My beef is with my dentist. Right when they stick two hands down my throat is when they decide to ask open-ended questions like, how's work going? How are things going with your wife and family? Unless you can understand my grunts, it might be a good idea to save the questions until a better time, Doc. Jeff from the PDX. Look who's in. Abby. Abby in SD. My beef is with Dwayne Johnson. Look, Dwayne. Why do you insist on running back the XFL a third time? The first two tries sucked cereal ass. And the next, we'll do exactly the same. Tommy Maddox and Rod Smart are not walking through that door, Dwayne. Look at Abby. More lady clones. Good job, Abby. Brendan in the natty. My beef is with LeBron bagging it up and celebrating the Rams' Super Bowl win like he just led the Lakers to another title. Bro, you're a Cowboys fan. Stick to passively aggressively trying to get your coach fired and try not to ruin any more of Tan Smack's movie franchises. Yeah, we know what he's doing when he's hyping the Rams. He's passively aggressive, aggressively trying to get his GM fired. That's why he hyped up Les Snead. So now he's trying to get his GM and his coach fired. Never mind that technically he's both those things himself. At Shaggy Mac. Yo, Tan Smack, I got beef with you and Alvy. You two have ruined me. I can't hear anyone say the word family, family. without immediately hearing Jugman in my head. Thanks, guys. Hey, Shaggy, I got a question. How's your family? It's a great night to be a tiger. I'm here with my family. Family. We are so excited. Dude on the jug rocks. He's like the Jimi Hendrix of jugs. Hey, Romy, my beef is with my wife. Crop dusting my kid? While we're at Costco and blaming it on the old line that he who smelt it dealt it. I stuck up for him and replied, you had the street tacos, not him. Rick and Chico. Hey, I don't know. Like... Fart humor normally is not amusing to me, but you caught me in a guffaw. I stuck up for him saying, you're the one who had the street tacos. And Romy, you rock, says, my beef is with drug company commercials. I took your drug and I'm not singing in the band. I'm not taking hikes. No one's asking me to parties. The grandkids don't come over and I'm not towing the coast in my drop top. War, I should have taken two aspirin and left it at that. Rich shaking his head like, yeah, 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 they're right. Hey, Jim, my beef is with coworkers in other departments suggesting ways that I should do my work. You don't walk into Javier's and tell him how to make enchiladas, do you? Keep your bad suggestions to yourself. Let me handle the business that I am paid to be an expert on. Thanks. G in the OC. Hey, Rome, my beef is with J.J. Reddick. He should be added to the no longer active rat family after snitching on me. Sign Zion. Jeremiah Greenville. Hey, Rome, my beef is with the idiots who flash their high beams while I'm out from my nighttime run. 
Hey, idiot. I'm grinding hard after a long day. The last thing I need is for my retinas burned out of my eye sockets while I'm finishing my day off strong listening to Goggins or Jocko. Get your fat ass on a Peloton and keep your bright lights out my face. Thanks. Brian in Boise. He, he just name-checked two of my favorite guys ever. Goggins and Jocko. I love it. Speaking of Peloton, you know what? They pulled my Peloton out of my gym today. My trusty Peloton, they pulled it out because I'm upgrading. That bad boy, I took my last ride on it yesterday. Hate to be this guy, but I'll be this guy. 900 plus rides on that Peloton. Check the medallion if you don't believe me. So the new one is coming, hopefully on time. I don't need downtime. Yo, I'll get fat. Brad at Shark Attack Mountain tweets, my beef is with a co-worker who takes the last cup of coffee and does not make a new pot. Hey, fat cat with an office, we're about to go squid game on your lazy ass. That's a good one. So, Chuck, do I veer off course and go to the phones or are they not good enough? And should I read more of these? Because there are more of these. Let's try the phones. 1-800-636-8686. Let's go to James in Portland. Dude, is he still there? Because it's not lit. James, what's going on? Jimmy, what's up, brother? There before he is. My beef, or for, before my beef, first props to Verone McKinley, number 23 from the Ducks and Old Trapper. Two fine things that come out of the state of Oregon. And my beef, Jim is with one of your rivals, the University of Cal Irvine, and their athletic department stealing Alvin's nickname. That's right, ladies, Alvy the Anteater. Like Alvy always says, extra skin equals extra pleasure. You're welcome. Ah. That's not a call. No. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Not a very good call. <laughs> I don't like that call. <laughs> oh, my God. That did not just happen, dude. Oh, my God. This dude. I love chocolate. Oh, go to the phones. Go to James in Portland. Go to James in Portland so he could utter the phrase, utter the phrase, extra skin equals A. This dude. Uh, did you rack him or run him, Alvin? Just out of curiosity. Rack him! Incredible. I, I mean, incredible. James in Portland, my man. You are a weird dude and funny. Let's go to Matt in Alaska. Like, I, I literally don't even believe he said that. Matt, what's your beef? Jim, what's going on? How the hell do you expect me to follow that? Right, that was, that was too much. I can barely make a sentence here. I got a beef with people who chew with their mouth open. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, that's disgusting enough, but you know you're going to call me on the phone. I've got a job where I got to you know, take incoming phone calls. Why are you doing that while you're eating? I do not want to listen to you smack on your food or crunch on your potato chips. War James in Portland and War Old Trapper including a couple of flosser sticks in my bag of jerky so when I'm done, I can pick it out of my molars and enjoy it again. I'm out. You got it. Matt in Alaska. Always good to hear from Alaska. It's the beef segment. What is your beef? You can beef about anything you want unless your name is James in Portland and then you lost that right. Like this dude. This dude genuinely is angry. 
old man angry. He's fired up every week, either in or out of the segment. Let's go to Bob in L.A. Hey, Bob, what's your beef? Jumbo, Jingle Jim. How about those brand new free 95 masks for your face? Uh, they're not worth the freedom. What you do is you have to put on now two straps to get it around your head. And by the time it gets to your face, it feels like your, your oxygen level is down to trying to get it through a straw. And then when you try to communicate with somebody, it sounds like you're talking underwater. But the worst part is for guys, when you wear it, when you wear it for over two hours or something, you take it off and you got the nice big imprint of that mask over your face and nose. Having everyone around you think that you just recently performed oral sex on your wife or girlfriend. Ah. No. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Not a very good call. Hey, Bob. What would you know about that topic? When I would imagine you've had nothing to do with that topic in about 40 years. This guy. Man, my man. <laughs> come on, old man. Oh man, you you did not just come in on an extremely reputable syndicated sports talk show that airs in the middle of the day and try to talk oral, old man. I mean, what do you what do you think of when you think of Bob in L.A.? How much oral he gets? Come on, man. Oral expert Bob in L.A. Bob. You're known for being the run his ass guy. Run his it's ass amazing, down. dude, what you've graduated to. Now you're an authority on oral. Of all people. 95-year-old Bob is calling and saying that rocking an N95 mask for two hours, when you take it off, you have imprints on your face that makes it look like that? Dude, you have to be kidding me. You already made me forget James in Portland's call. Did you ever think that anybody could one-up James, much less that old man? If I had said to you, what do you think Bob in L.A. has to do to one-up James in Portland, I would have said, oh, he's going to have to talk about he and his lady and how they get nice and where he goes to get nice. Ooh. Be nice, nice radio, Bob. Way to get nice. Like, like, I literally am more blown away by that than I was James. And I thought nothing could happen that would get me to be, to forget about James in Portland. Like, that, that's insane, Bob. Dude, I, I'm this close to giving you a golden ticket for that, Bob. That was utterly incredible. Quickly, let's go to Dom and Erie. Dom understands. Hey, Dom, what's your beef? Hey, Jim. Uh, my beef is with the chicken man not calling during the Anything Goes segment. Dude has one of the best calls from those kind of segments. Steve, you bitch. How do you not take that once-in-a-lifetime chance to double down and add to your name? I guess his rooster isn't as big as he claims. Ah. That's not a good call. No. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Not a very good call. Old man Bob. Like, I literally... Dude, how do you even remember anything about that? When you have not engaged in that probably in 40 years. That, that, that is insanity. Dan Hurley is my guest. Dan, good to have you back. How are you? Jim, good good being back on with you, man. It means I must be doing something right or or I did something bad. My man, I don't remember the last time you did something bad, 
and I know you're doing something <laughs> right, so you're all good. It's great to have you back. Thanks so much. Listen, it's been a minute or two since we've spoken, but you're coming off a win over a top-10 team. Absolutely classic game, Dan. There's a lot to talk about involving that game in the season, but just overall, how are you doing and what's the vibe like around the program, something you've worked so hard to build? Yeah, well, you know, day after game, I'm usually, like, completely spent, but, you know, since I only – didn't even get halfway through the game last night. I actually got more energy today. I only right. did about half my job, half my job yesterday. Um, but you know, Jim, this is a unique uh, you know type of place. I mean, you know, UConn basketball is just so big in this state. You know, that there's you know, I grew up in Jersey, where it's you know where where, where the universities and and even the professional sports teams kind of you know, kind of battling for, you know, the attention of, of the state or the area. But, you know, when, when you live in Connecticut, it, it you know, it, it's UConn Huskies all day long. Um, you know, the, the Celtics and the Red Sox and the Patriots are secondary. You know, the University of Connecticut is a, is a Husky crazy state. And, uh, and, and right now, the, you know, the state is going crazy uh, over over their Huskies. I think that's a great description, and I also love, Dan, that you're full of energy right now because you only worked half the night last night. Listen, I, I, with respect to that, Dan, I understand you're going to be careful. You have to be careful how you answer this, but you were ejected in the first half, and that second tee appeared to be appeared to be you turning to the crowd and just pumping them up. Is that what the technical was for? And if so, how do you explain that, or how was it explained to you? Yeah, I think, you know, for... You know, for me, it was, you know, I think the first technical, um, you know, I'm known to when, when our players, you know, miss shots, you know, close to the basket or, or easy shots, I may react with some emotion and I turned and kind of smacked the scorer's table. And, and I think the, you know, the official interpreted that as a re- reaction to uh, a, a missed call. So I got kind of a delayed technical on the first one. And then the, you know, the second one, I saw Gillespie at the line. I, I felt like I had kind of calmed down from, I thought, a questionable first technical and and, um, and and was now kind of turning to get the crowd involved while Gillespie shot the free throws and try to steal a point. I knew it was going to be a close game and, you know, see if I could get the crowd back into it and make the guy miss the free throw. And, you know, then I, w- I was sent packing at that point. So, um, you know, for me, I think with a lot of things in life, you know, two things could be true. Um, I don't feel like uh, my ejection or, or at least one of the technicals was warranted. And I also feel like the other part of it that's true is that you know, I've got a, a very formidable team and, and I'm at a big-time program and I can't put myself in our program in that type of position again. Dan Hurley joining us. I respect that, Dan, very much. So you were down four with 21 seconds left. Then you cut it to one. And then R.J. Cole had a huge bucket in the paint with 5.9 seconds left to take the lead, I thought. And you talked about what that program means to that state. I thought that roof was going to come off the building altogether. What was that moment like for you? Really, I mean, um, you know, when, when, we, when we turned it over and they were shooting a one-and-one and, one and uh, it was a four-point game, I actually was heading towards uh, towards the urinal uh, in the in the area that I was watching the game in, and said to myself, "I think this one is over." Um, and then I quickly kind of pivoted and you know talked myself into watching. It was like excruciating, Jim. Like I, I didn't, I couldn't watch them make the one and one, and then us lose by eight. Like I just, I, I was, I, I was, I was losing it. So, but I, I, I kind of pivoted and got back, and and they missed the front end and. 
you know, and, and uh, you know, Kamani great, made a, a great call on the side out to get Tyler Polly, uh, Tyler Polly the three. Uh, we did a good job of tying him up, you know, and then R.J. Cole, uh, R.J. Cole was, uh, he was cold-blooded, um, you know, driving it and scoring it at the rim and then taking the charge to seal the game. It was like everything the program had been um, really since the decline. It, it was just, it was like this emotional boiling point in the XL Center in Hartford last night where literally, you know, the arena, uh, the arena ceiling literally almost came off, uh, almost was was shot into space when, when RJ got that charge. Hey, I'm not going to lie. I'm having so much fun with this conversation. This is incredible. Dan Hurley is joining us. I was going to say, Dan, not only did he hit that game-winning bucket, but he did take the charge. Now, the one thing that we did not <laughs> mention is what he said. He said, quote, once coach went out, it was just like, okay, now we have to win this game for him. But the team as a whole, they kind of cut the head of the snake off, but we didn't allow that to sway us tonight, end of quote. How proud are your guys for that kind of response, for them to stay in, not get rattled, not have them go on that run and lose by 8 or 10, and to do so against a really good Villanova team? Yeah, and I think that's probably the biggest part of it, you know, Jim. It's like, it's who my staff and my players, you know, did it against. It's, you know, it's one thing to be able to, to, beat, a, to beat a good team in that spot, a talented team, when the coach gets uh, the coach gets run, and uh, but to do that against you know Villanova, you know and and Jay, and the championship pedigree and and the you know playing those guys, it's like trying to bend steel. I mean they're, they're so hard to beat, and and just you know for you know for for my program and you know for RJ's team to uh, you know to be able to for the last 25 minutes of that game with. The incredible coaching staff I have. Um, you yeah, just proud, man. Just like proud of, of where our culture is, and uh, and where our toughness is, and and how we look. You know that that's how you're gonna have to perform in March to, to keep advancing and and winning games. And we showed. You know, the medal of a team that's got a chance to, to do some things in March. Dan Hurley joining us. I love your description of your team, and I love the analogy you made about Jay Wright and his program that's like trying to bend steel. Now, when you talk about your program and where you're at, that's the school's first win, Dan, against a top 10 team in 13 tries. It was not that long ago that you announced, quote, people better get us now. That's all. You better get us now because it's coming. End of quote. So with that performance last night, has it officially arrived? Yeah, I think it's um, you know it's been happening for us. I think last night was a you know a, a culmination of a, of a good stretch. But you know we're ten and three uh, in our last thirteen. You know in the Big East, um, you know we, we've obviously got three games left that we want to finish. You know finish strong um, earlier in the year. You know I think Auburn's one of the best teams in the country, in maybe the best game of the year in college basketball. Uh, you know we were able to beat them in a big uh, in a big. Uh, Thanksgiving battle in the Bahamas. So, you know, last year we took a big step. Not having book night for a large part of the year kind of, I think, stunted what we could have been uh, last year. But, you know, this year when we play to our identity, you know, we are formidable. And um, this is the closest that UConn has looked uh, to what it should be in, uh, you know, in a long time. And um, you know, I think we have all the ingredients. Uh, you know, to, to, to kind of bring back memories of you kind of March again uh, 
you know, this coming March. All right, so before I let you go, you talk about identity. Dan, back in 2018, before you arrived, Villanova had beaten UConn by 20, and you made clear that type of performance is not going to be acceptable any longer. Two of your guys from last night were on that team in 2018, so I can only imagine what it must be like for the two of them and for you to see them. But when you talk about identity, I mean, it's kind of understood what your teams are going to be like. But if you had to describe that identity, what's the identity you're looking for from your guys in your team? Yeah, I mean, hardest playing, um, you know, passion, intensity, um, playing with emotion, but not being overly emotional and and then finding yourself not in the game any longer. But, you know, like just like relentless, like ruthless, uh, you know, ruthless killer mindset, uh, being about making winning plays, never thinking about self, uh, you know, and, and at this place, you know, just – you know, bleeding blue at UConn. I mean, like literally, from when you when you step foot on campus to when you leave the program, um, you know, you, you, the, the the color of your blood's got to change from red to blue. You know, this this program is bigger than than any of us. I mean, the greatest coaches to ever coach the game of college basketball, from Coach Calhoun, uh, you know, the Gino Ariema, to Kevin Ollie with the national championship, to the endless number of NBA players and NCAA champions that have played here. I mean, you truly, uh, it's an honor to represent this brand. So, uh, you know, got to bleed blue. Bleed blue, Jim. I got to ask you, Dan, I'm careful not to ask you or your brother or your family about your family, but that family, man, I mean, pound for pound, who is the most intense person in the Hurley family? My dad. Yeah. My dad, you know, like this stickball. You know, I used to play stickball, sure. like not, not wiffle ball. I mean, wiffle ball was fun too, but we go play like the stickball games um, at like old Roosevelt Stadium in Jersey, and it'll be me, and my brother, and my dad. And if we like telling you if like we hit one, made solid contact, the next one was coming at your chin from my dad. <laughs> I'm just telling you, right? Um, so my dad, but like, listen, you know. You never want it to be like last night where, you know, again, the ejection is not the look I want. I don't want that for my team. You know, there's some level of, you know, you're embarrassed by it and it hits you hard. There's a level of emptiness because uh, I wish I could have been out there to uh, to enjoy more of the night. Um, but, but you do, you know, when, when a Hurley does show up um, for that night's sporting event, you're going to get somebody that is, is fully invested in the moment. And it's bringing everything they have in their person uh, to to winning that battle. And some of the games, occasionally, it feels more like a UFC event fight than it does a game. But I think that's what's unbelievable about sports is when you have these intense, drama-filled moments. Um, and we certainly delivered one in Hartford last night. I was going to say, what's wrong with that? It does feel like a cage event. It does. There's nothing wrong with that. And, Dan, I know you're owning this. I don't think you – I get the point. I really do, that you want to be there for your guys. You want to lead from the front. You have to be available. But in defense of you, and I'm not looking to make this a cheap shot, really, not too cheap, it's not like you reached over and punched somebody in the handshake line. You just tried to get mm-hmm. the crowd fired up, right? Mm. So you yeah, need, to, you need um, to stop beating yourself up about that. No, I, I you know, I'm certainly, uh, I never try to take a, a, just a victim mentality, you know, in, in life. I think just growing up with the dad I have and, and the, 
you know, and, and the family I grew up with, with and, and my dad being our coach and, you know, just always, you know, taught me and Bob and um, to just to accept responsibility for everything uh, in life and never take a victim mentality and never, bl- you know, blame, complain, or defend your position. Um, you know, it, it's a mentality that you always try to take through life. And, you know, I, I obviously, I, I have thoughts on, you know, on obviously the ejection, but for me, um, you know, Jim, it's, uh, I've got to be better. And, um, because my players deserve better for me and and my fan base, you know, that this incredible fan uh, base deserves better. I actually have learned a great deal during this conversation. It makes me want to be better. And I I usually never keep a guest this long, but really quickly, because you have Georgetown on Sunday, it's another big Mm -hmm. challenge, another big opportunity. What is your message to the team as you deal with the hype from the win? As we know, success is sometimes harder to deal with than failure. What's your message? Mm -hmm. How do you get them ready? Yeah, I'm going to brutalize these guys the next couple days in practice because I I know, um, you know, they're, they're swimming in dopamine right now, right? I mean, they're, they're backstroking, they're, 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 they're doing the breaststroke, they're freestyling, right? they are swimming in the dopamine on social media, <laughs> right? Amazing. I mean, it's happening Amazing. right now, so I will reality check their, you know what, the next couple days going into that game, because, uh, you know, we, we can't throw it all back, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to do something big here, and in order to do something big, um, we got to continue, uh, we got to keep winning. And, you know, the way you win is, is uh, you know, r- relentlessly pursuing uh, the, the greatest level of preparation. Man, I was going to say, Dan, like, how, how do old guys like you and I go all boomer on their ass and say, hey, 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 get off your phone, get off your phone, when you know they're not yeah. getting off their phone? I guess your yeah. response would be like, I'll see you at practice. Yeah, Jim, well, you know what? I recruit guys that are going to let me coach them. You know, I, I do not recruit, you know, like cartoon characters with, you know, that are more interested in their brand or, you know, their recruit, their recruiting process is a circus. You know, the number one thing, you know, and the, when we evaluate with my coaching staff is, is this player going to let me and let us coach him? And, uh, I think the best thing about our team and our program in an old, old school style of way, you know, our players, they let us coach them. They let us push them. They let us drive them to, to make them better every day. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's the best part of our group. I'm fired up. I wish I had eligibility in any game whatsoever, Dan. I'd come knocking. I'd come knocking. But I, but I have neither. But I have neither. UConn is 20-7. and seven. They're 11-5 and five in the Big East. They're number 20 in the coaches' poll. And they've got a big one Sunday at Georgetown. Their head coach is Dan Hurley. Dan, appreciate you and your fam a great deal. Really good to have you back, Dan. Thanks so much. Great, great conversation. Honor, man. Thank you, brother. Good night now!